Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't gonna tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. All right. If you have your Bibles and you do want to follow along, turn to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. My gosh, it's going to get crazy out here uh, pretty soon. Uh, Just because the old, we are in the middle of a new series called Old School, where we are looking at books of the Old Testament in the modern times and learning and seeing what we can learn from them. Now, I'm not, I am doing a broad overview of the book, okay? Uh, Last week, we covered Daniel, okay? And I gave a challenge to people to uh, go read Daniel and uh, about 12 chapters or so. And so, uh, there's lots of stuff in there. And, and the funny part about studying the Old Testament, and, I, and I'm talking about studying it, is that you realize that what God says he does. And you really can't understand what he's doing today if you don't understand what he did. Okay, so that's what we're doing. We're going back and, and looking at what God has done in the past and how that relates to us in this modern day. So who is Ezekiel? Ezekiel is is, uh, one of the prophets of the exile. Okay, so in our last series, uh, talking about, it was called Grown Ups, we actually ended talking, or in that series, we talked about uh, Jonah and how Jonah was sent to Nineveh to make Nineveh repent, which is crazy because it's one of the only times that God sent an actual prophet to a Gentile nation to tell them to repent. And Nineveh does. But 40 years later, they come back and they wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay. Now, about 150 years later is is where we are now. After the fall of the northern kingdom, you ever heard of the, the term, the lost tribes of Israel? Well, those were the, that was the 10 northern tribes that made up Israel. Now, they're not really lost, but what the Assyrians did is they didn't kill everybody. They just took everybody and then put them in different parts of the Assyrian kingdom and took Assyrians and put them where they were. Okay. So they're just scattered. They're, they're diluted. They're, they're everywhere. Okay. So 150 years later, about we come up to the prophets Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, okay? Now, the, we, we didn't, we, I started with Daniel, okay? And uh, I could have started with Jeremiah because he kind of starts it. After the northern kingdom is done, then all of a sudden God raises up this prophet named Jeremiah and Jeremiah starts telling the people of Judah, if you don't repent, Babylon is going to come and destroy the temple and destroy us. Well, obviously they don't listen. And one of the reasons they didn't listen is because Babylon was like saying, Connecticut is going to come get us. Oh, Connecticut, (laughs) right? Babylon was nothing. Okay. So no wonder they're not listening. They're like, Assyria is the world power, not Babylon. Yes, dude. They called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. So he, he like paves the way. Well, guess what happens? Exactly like God said it would happen. Babylon comes, 
takes uh, part of uh, Judah and, and basically ransacks them and starts pulling them to Babylon, okay? So contemporaries of Ezekiel, Jeremiah came first, Daniel came second, Ezekiel came or third. So uh, also contemporaries, and I'm not saying they knew each other, okay? I'm not saying that they were buddies, okay? Uh, other contemporaries that we will learn about next week is Ezra and Nehemiah and a mystery person that is going to absolutely blow your mind and a key is going to be inserted into your biblical knowledge, turned, opened up, and there's going to be a whole new world that you never even realized what was going on in the Old Testament. It's exciting and it's absolutely beautiful. There's intrigue. Ah, such good stuff if you know what to look for. So anyway, we've got a contemporary of Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Uh, other contemporaries include, does anybody, has anybody ever heard the name Siddhartha? What about his last name, Gautama? Siddhartha, Gautama, anybody? Buddha is born at this time. The founding of Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, is born right at this time. And, I, and when I say this time, I'm talking about like a span of like 70 years. You know what I mean? Like, you want to know what else? who else is a contemporary of our Ezekiel? A guy named Confucius is born. And that is just kind of setting in our minds where we are talking about. Okay, so 1000 BC is, is King David, right around there. And I'm using a four inch paintbrush to paint a little bitty picture, okay? 1000 BC is King David. Around 750 BC is Jonah, and, and, and right around there is also the, the defeat of the Northern Kingdom, okay? Now we're at about 600 BC, 150 years later. And coincidentally, I, this is the way I think. You know, you think, well, how could Judah, they saw what happened to the northern kingdom when they didn't do right. And then these prophets are telling them, I mean, how could they not see it? Well, you know, think about this. It is roughly the same time between the northern kingdom getting destroyed and the southern kingdom getting destroyed as it is between the Civil War and now for us. Think about how the United States was during the Civil War. Think about the, and I'm, not, and I'm not even talking about the war. I'm talking about just the people. You know, they, they worship God. I mean, there was a big faith, right? Because our country was founded on God, right? My, how far we've come, right? My, how far we've come. So, um, Ezekiel kind of begins this uh, or lays out the fact that there are three exiles from Judah, okay? The first one happens at about 605 BC, okay? Daniel is in that group along with Shadrach, Meshach, and their billy goat, okay? All of them are taken in the first wave to Babylon, okay? So Daniel goes in the first wave with his three buddies. Um, they are already serving in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons that Babylon and Assyria and these other kingdoms become world powers is because they don't kill the smart people. They use the smart people. So whoever was ruling in Jerusalem, they took those to Babylon and gave them high positions in the court because they knew how to run things. And that's how Daniel ended up being there. The first wave 
includes Daniel and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They go. The second wave is when Ezekiel is taken, okay? So Ezekiel is taken in the, in the third, and then in the, in, um, in the second, and then in the third wave is when the temple is destroyed and everybody else is taken. So there's three waves that are going to go from Judah to Babylon, okay? Uh, coincidentally, we will learn next Sunday that there are three returns whenever God brings them out of Babylon. The first uh, return will include a guy named Zerubbabel who wants to rebuild the temple. So he comes back to rebuild the temple. Years later, a second wave is, is granted to come back and that has the, the prophet Ezra. And he is going to read the Torah. The temple's built, but nobody's teaching. So he goes back to teach in the temple, right? And then to read the Torah. And then the third and final return is uh, with Nehemiah, where they build the walls back on Jerusalem. So there's three exiles, right? Three waves going, three waves coming back. But let's get into the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. Chapters 1 through 11 is kind of an introduction to Ezekiel. And it's the glory, it talks about the glory of God and the call of Ezekiel as a prophet. Now, he is in Babylon when the, when the book of Ezekiel starts. He is by the Kabar River. Now, there is no Kabar River. What it actually was, a better way to understand this, is Babylon actually encompassed about 70 square miles Okay, that's how big Babylon was, you know, with the communities and all of that. Ezekiel is, is, on the, is in a refugee camp on the banks of the Kabar River, but really all it is is, you know, the Tigris and Euphrates run through there. They built these big canals to water fields, and it's just a canal, okay? It's like you're over by, you're assigned to Kabar Canal, and he is sitting there one day on the banks of the river, lamenting that Jeremiah, the one that everybody thought was an idiot, because Jeremiah was the only one saying, hey, y'all better be careful. Babylon's going to come get you. You're not doing things right. All the other prophets in Israel were like, oh, God loves what we're doing. He doesn't mind. He thinks we're doing it great, right? So, so Jeremiah, Ezekiel sitting there like, we should have listened to Jeremiah. But Ezekiel says something. Well, I'll get to that in a second. So there's a deal that says in the 30th year, okay? I'm gonna be a little bit out of, out of order here, but I think it's important. And I ask God to change my mind about anything at any time. So we're gonna to go to why 30 is important. So Ezekiel was training to be a priest in the temple, okay? There's lots of training you have to go, just like anything, you got to memorize the Torah and you have to know every little thing because if you mess up, man, God's wrath might be on everybody, right? So temple priests were trained for a long time and temple priests were not allowed to serve until their 30th year, okay? Why is that important? Have you ever wondered why Jesus started his ministry at 30 years old? That is why. Because isn't Jesus our high priest, right? He couldn't start his ministry because of the law says that a priest cannot serve 
in the temple until he is 30 years old. Well, Jesus is going to be the temple, right? That, and, and that's just an interesting fact. But think about Ezekiel, this poor dude. Let me put this into uh, context for you. Um, you have trained your whole life and waited for that driver's license at 16 years old, right? And the day before your 16th birthday, they come and change the age to 21. Okay, that's kind of what happened to Ezekiel. He has been training to serve in the temple and right before he can serve, he's exiled to Babylon. So he's sitting there in his 30th year when he should be uh, serving in the temple and all of a sudden he sees a real vision of the glory of God. Actually, what he sees is the actual throne of God, okay? So, let me describe what Ezekiel saw, okay? There are four angels, okay? Each of these four angels have four wings, and they also have four faces. The face of a man, the face of an ox, the face of a lion, and the face of an eagle. Two of the cherubim's wings, each one touches another cherubim, and they make a square, right? So their wings are kind of 90 degrees behind them. They have two that are folded over them, two that touch everybody else, and underneath them are these wheels that basically kind of look like a gyroscope for for. All intents and purposes, it looks like a gyroscope. A wheel within a wheel are underneath them. And the cherubim, which is what you call those four angels, the cherubim and the wheels are all covered in eyeballs, okay? And on this stage that these four angels are carrying is a literal throne of God with the Ancient of Days sitting on it. And it appears to Ezekiel... And he does exactly what every other person that ever came into direct contact with God does. He falls down and thinks he's dead. That's what happens. And so another angel comes down and helps Ezekiel up and says, hey, man, you got to pay attention to this. You can't be dying right now. Okay. So the cherubim, this deal represents the throne of God. Okay, these are created creatures that carry around the throne of God, and it basically represents the presence of God, and all the eyeballs symbolize that there's nothing that God can't see. Okay, so pretty strange. But I want you to understand something about these four beings, these four angels. The Bible in, chap in Ezekiel chapter 10 tells, them, tells us that they are called cherubim. Okay, here's something about them. In the tabernacle, before the temple was built, there was a thing called a tabernacle. And it was basically a big tent that symbolized the temple, okay? It was a miniature version of the temple. It had a holy of holies. It had the Ark of the Covenant. Coincidentally, on the Ark of the Covenant is two cherubim. And God says, I reside between the cherubim. The presence of God is between the cherubim, okay? You've also heard cherubim because that's what, was, that's what was placed at the mouth of the Garden of Eden whenever Adam and Eve were kicked out. A cherubim stood there, okay? So we know a little bit about cherubim, but let's talk about the ox, eagle, lion, and man. With the tabernacle, 
when it was set up in the wilderness during the Exodus, the tabernacle sits here and the Levites were the ones that were the priests, okay? Their camp had to be square according to their number. So however many number of Levites, they made their camp square. Now, God told them in Leviticus, you can't camp anywhere around the tabernacle except the cardinal directions, meaning north, south, east, and west. There can't be anybody to the southeast, northeast, southwest, northwest. Those are blank spaces, okay? And the width of the center camp determined the width of the other camps, okay? Are you following me right now? So here's the way it was. There was 12 tribes and there's four cardinal directions. So if you divide 12 by four, three tribes were in each cardinal direction, okay? Now, the tabernacle always faced east, okay? And on the east side, that means that's where the gate was to get into the tabernacle. East side, on the east side is Judah, okay? Now, isn't it funny that in order to get to the tabernacle, you had to go through the tribe of Judah, who came from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Didn't he say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. You had to go through the tribe of Judah to get in there, okay? But at this time in the, in the wilderness, there was about 186,000 in Judah's line to the east, okay? And it's a long line because it can't be wider than the Levites. So it's long and skinny, 186,000 east. And Judah is represented by what animal? The lion, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, right? The lamb has become the lion. To the south, okay, to the south is Reuben with his other two tribes, and they're 151. So we're going to put them off to the side, 151. And then on the other side is... Uh, on, to the west is Ephraim, and they have 108. They're the smallest big group. And then to the north is the tribe of Dan, which is symbolized by the eagle. Ephraim is the ox, Reuben is the man. Now, why am I telling you all of this? My gosh, you're like, what? Listen, when Balaam was supposed to curse the Israelite nation. He went out onto a high peak, and we studied this. He went out onto a peak. He, couldn't, he tried to curse them, but a blessing came out, but he couldn't see them all. So he kept going on these outward peaks to look over the Israelite camp. Finally, on the third one, he saw it, and he said, hey, a, a star and a scepter are going to come from the Israelites, right? But when he looked down, I want you to understand something. Uh... When you look at north and south, 151,000 and 157,000, they're pretty much equal, right, in the grand scheme of things. To the west was Ephraim, only 108,000, so there's not very many of them. And the biggest one was Judah with 186,000. Why does that matter? The temple where the tabernacle was, nothing could be wider than that. And then you have to the east, all of them stretch all the way down there. And then you have two nearly equal camps on both sides. And then you have the smallest one up here. When you look down from space, what would that look like? A cross. Listen, there's nothing that is not connected. This is not some multiverse 
mythological deal that was studied somewhere. These things actually happen, and there's a, there's a reason that this happened, okay? So what we have to understand is that Ezekiel is giving us, is giving us an eyewitness account of the throne of God. Coincidentally, there's other people that see the exact same thing. Who is it? John in Revelation. He tells the exact same thing with the exact same cherubim and the exact same wheels. Now, some people might say, well, they borrowed that. John just borrowed that symbolism from Ezekiel. Well, there's another. If they say the same thing, maybe they saw the same thing, right? It's not rocket math, okay? All right, so God gives Ezekiel a commission to be a prophet. God called him to warn Judah of breaking their covenant by worshiping other gods and that the temple faced imminent destruction. Okay, so that's what Ezekiel's supposed to say. He's supposed to warn the exiles in Judah that the temple's fixing to be destroyed. So God, you do not want to be a prophet, just so so you know, you don't want to be a prophet. Um, So God says, listen, Jeremiah used words and other things and couldn't get their attention. So we're going to try another thing with you. Guess what? We're going to try something new, Ezekiel. It's going to be cool. He's like, yeah, what is it, God? And he goes, I want you to make a miniature version of Jerusalem. Miniature version of Jerusalem. And I want you to pretend that it's being ransacked. So he basically has to make this little army man fort of Jerusalem and play army men and boom, 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 Israel's destroyed. And he does that day after day after day. They think he's crazy. But they're not listening to words, so he's acting it out. And then another thing, he has to cut his hair and, and like chop it up on the ground, and, and which was crazy because he had to shave, and priests don't cut their hair and they don't shave, right? Uh, and then he had to play the role of the scapegoat. Now, what is the scapegoat? When somebody would go to make a, a sacrifice at the temple, there was always two goats. They killed one, and then they took the others and basically laid their hands on it, and God allowed the transfer of all of Israel's sin to go on that scapegoat, and then they turn it loose in the wilderness. Okay, that's a scapegoat. So Ezekiel has to play the role of the scapegoat, but the way God tells him to do it is he says, I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days, and the only thing you can eat is this bad barley bread that is cooked over human waste. You want to be a prophet? Well, God, Ezekiel kind of complains about that. God, you know, I mean, it's one thing. My hair will grow back and everything, but I don't want to be ceremonially unclean. And so God says, I tell you what, why don't you just cook over animal dung instead to symbolize, because that's what the people that are left in Judah, the stragglers are going to have to do is cook over animal dung. So he has to do that for 390 days. Now, I'm not saying that he did that all, you know, for 390, 24-hour days, he laid on his left side. I don't really think that was the case. It could have been, but I think what he did is, you know, every morning he had to go out, lay on his left side, anything he had to eat that day, he had to cook it over a a fire made with cow chips. And uh, and he did that for 300, and then at night he would go, go back home. Right? So that, that's the way I picture it. But he did that for 390 days straight. And then God said, hey, you did a good job. Do it for 40 more days for Judah on the other side. So anyway, 
He does all that. But more than anything, God told Ezekiel, you're going to do all of this and ain't nobody going to listen. Which in my mind, the reason I'm not a prophet is because I'd been like, well, listen, if they're not going to listen, <laughs> why do I need to do all this, right? Well, God makes him do it anyway. So uh, it is also when God told Ezekiel that they weren't going to listen. This isn't the first time it's happened. If you, if you want to turn over to Deuteronomy 30 in chapter 4, Moses even predicts this. He goes, even though you are banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back. Right? So th this is a rebellious nation and God still loves them. And he's going to take care of them, but he ain't going to let them just do it for free. They're going to get punished along the way too. So that's all of chapters four and five. And then eight through 11 tell of why God is going to let the temple be destroyed. Because at the temple in Jerusalem at the time, they go in there, the altar's there, the, I mean, everything is there, as well as two statues to foreign gods right outside the temple. Now, I call these Aflac idols. Okay, you know what Aflac does, right? It fills in the gaps that your insurance won't pay. I think they were worshiping these other gods just in case God didn't come through. These Aflac idols might pitch in and help, right? They're, they're insane. They're insane. We do the same thing. We always do the same thing. We say we worship God, but then we do other things that might say differently. Okay, so Ezekiel's commission. Uh, talking about God's going to let the temple be destroyed because they're, they're, yeah, they're worshiping him, but they're worshiping everybody else too. But instead of a band, and so what Ezekiel sees is the glory of God rising up out of the temple and coming to Babylon. The presence of God goes with his people. And when the presence of God is lifted up and gone, that's the third wave and that's when the temple is destroyed. That's when the temple is destroyed. So from here, from chapter 11, the book is divided into two parts, okay? And we've gone through most of what it is. From here on out, we got 48 more chapters to go, okay? So we're gonna take some big swaths with our paint to get you an idea of what's going on, okay? From here, the book is divided into two different parts, God's judgment and God's hope, Okay, and in the judgment part is chapters 12 through 24. It's the judgment on Israel of what God's going to do. He's punishing them, right? And then in 25 through 32, God tells Ezekiel that, hey, man, you're, we're not just going to judge Israel. I'm going to judge the nations around them, and I'm going to take care of them too. And then in chapter 33, it's the... Uh, uh, judgment on Jerusalem itself. And then in 34 starts the hope section. 34 through 48 is uh, first for Israel and then for all of creation, how God's going to bring Israel back and through Israel, he's going to bless the whole world. Okay. So let's talk about the judgment of Israel. In 12 through 24, man, God gives him the use of uh, parables and allegories, just example after example after example of how Israel is. In chapter 15, Israel is a burnt and useless stick. You can't use it for walking. You can't use it for, you know, for a fire. It, it's burnt up and useless. And then in 16, Israel is, is likened unto a cheating wife. 
And then in chapter 19, Israel is compared to a captured dangerous lion. And then in chapter 23, Israel is uh, looked at as two promiscuous sisters that don't do what they're supposed to do. But in chapter 24, and this is really a turning point in Ezekiel's life, this is why I said you don't want to be a prophet. In chapter 24, God specifically tells Ezekiel, your wife's going to die. I'm going to take your wife. <laughs> I'm going to take your wife tomorrow. And this is what you've got to do. You cannot cry and you cannot mourn out loud. You cannot shed one single tear when your wife dies, because that is going to be what I am going to make the nation of Israel do when the temple is destroyed. They will not be able to mourn or cry. They will just groan inwardly. And sure enough, the next night, Ezekiel's wife is dead. And he cannot mourn out loud. He can't do anything until after the temple is destroyed. And then God allows him to speak again. And he tells the prophecy of what had happened. So, Israel is to mourn its loss of the temple the same as Ezekiel mourned his silently. Okay, then we go to the judgment of the nations. Remember, I talked about God's judgment first for Israel, then the nations, and then Jerusalem. So God's judgment on the nations, specifically Philistia, Philistia Edom, Moab, Ammon, Egypt, and Tyre. God renounces the kings of Egypt and Tyre for thinking that they are gods. I mean, they're pretty powerful and they're thinking that they're bunch of hot stuff. And he tells them that he will use Babylon to crush them just like he allowed Babylon to crush Jerusalem. And it happens just as God does. And then it gets into God's hope for Israel. So we got through the judgments. Now it's the hope for Israel. And in chapter 34, God tells Ezekiel the same thing he tells Daniel. I am going to raise up someone who is like a son of man. Now, you have to understand that in Ezekiel, the term son of man is used more times than any other place. Over 100 times, I think. In 48 chapters, it's called the son of man. But you have to pay attention in your Bibles. If son of man is, is lowercase, it's just a word for humans. If it is capitalized, it is for Jesus. Okay, so don't get confused when God calls Ezekiel son of man, son of man, son of man. He's just saying, you are nothing but flesh and blood. But out of this flesh and blood, I will raise up somebody that is a son of man that will do all of this stuff. Okay, so just a deal there. The hope for Israel, a new David, a new son of man, someone who will rule righteously and worship God. He says it will happen. And in 36, God says, I will give Israel a new heart. And it's going to happen whenever I breathe my Holy Spirit into them. And then in chapter 37, have you ever heard the valley of the dry bones? Right? So God takes Ezekiel to this valley. It's a vision. And, and there's just these dead bones. And God says, this is Israel. But when my spirit comes and these dry bones start putting themselves together like skeletons and all of a sudden, uh, Skin muscle starts growing on them and before long they're real people and God says this is what I'm going to do with my nation. But you have to understand, even in the time of Jesus, Israel did not exist as a nation. They were a vassal state of Rome. We saw the valley of dry bones. We saw that come to fruition when Israel 
was made a nation again. Did you know that there's actually a deal in the Encyclopedia Britannica in the 1911 edition in the, in the part about Israel? And whoever wrote that in the Encyclopedia Britannica said, that Israel has not existed as a state in over 2,000 years, and despite what the Bible says, there is no human way possible that Israel will ever be a nation with Jewish people in it. 37 years later, Israel is a nation. We saw that, the valley of dry bones get put back together and God brought them in. I mean, even in 1911, the smartest people in the world said there's no way Israel can ever be a nation. And in 1948, there it was. Amen. So, uh, and then he says God's hope for the nations. It's not just for Israel. God defeats evil in chapters 38 and 39, and it's the battle against Gog. Now, you, maybe you remember that from Revelation in a study we did last year about this time. Gog, if you go back to the, the uh, genealogies in Genesis, the first ones like Canaan and, you know, kind of around the time of Babel, well, Gog is the area of Russia. That's where this guy named Gog went and settled. The land of Canaan is named after uh, Noah's grandson. These are all names of people, and they end up naming that land after the first person that settled there that we knew of, okay? So Gog is the area of Russia, Ukraine, stuff like that. And Gog comes down and grabs these other nations that we talked about, these vassal states, and they try to destroy Israel and God protects Israel, okay? So in Ezekiel 38, 16, this is what it says. And God is talking to, God is talking to Gog. And you will attack my people, Israel, covering their land like a cloud. At that time in the distant future, I will bring you against my land as everyone watches. Does this sound familiar like it could happen if everyone is watching? And my holiness will be displayed by what happens to you, Gog. Then all the nations will know that I am Lord. So Gog is, I mean, somebody in the area of Russia is going to gather up all of Israel's enemies and come down and try to defeat them. And there's no way Israel can survive except God comes down and takes care of them for him. Okay? So... Gog is the personification of all human rebellion, but Gog is not the Antichrist, okay? Gog is not the Antichrist, but he is a big bad ombre that will attack Israel. So in, verse, in chapters 40 through 46 is God's hope for all of creation, um, and it is a vision of the new temple. Man, go read that. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing of what this temple is going to look like. Everything is bigger and badder than other temples that have been built. The first temple, well, the second temple hasn't been built yet, but it will. And, uh, but the new temple that God will build is amazing. Uh, God's glory returns to Jerusalem. Uh, some say, and, and, and I'm just gonna say, a lot of people look at all of this stuff in Ezekiel and say, oh, it's just spiritual. It's just an example of the spiritual. Look, man, if God says it, you're going to have to prove to me that God meant something other than what he just said, right? I don't have to prove to you what God said. You read it for yourself. If you think it says something different than that, you're going to have to prove to me that God didn't mean what he said. So I say it's literal. Listen, if it doesn't happen exactly like this, it will be something better and it definitely will be better, okay? So if it doesn't happen exactly like our two-dimensional brains 
can picture it, it will happen something like that, but much better. Okay, and it talks about the millennial kingdom and all of this beautiful, beautiful stuff. What does it all mean? <laughs> My gosh, we just covered 48 chapters in about 30 minutes. Okay, what does it all mean? Number one, it means that just as Israel was rebellious, so are we. So are we. So are you. How many times do we repent and we do good for a little while and then we fall away again and then we repent and we come back to God and we just, we do this over and over and over and that will happen until God comes back and gets us, right? The only cure for our rebellion is to do what God says. And listen, if you do what God says, he says, I'll bless you. And if you don't do what God says, he says, I ain't gonna bless you. <laughs> Okay, like it's not rocket math. Follow God, everything ends up real good. Don't follow him, everything turns up real bad, right? Uh, number two, what does all of this mean? That these are eyewitness accounts of the glory of God, of cherubim and seraphim and, and the ancient ones sitting on the throne. These are not symbolic. That actually happened. There are eyewitness accounts and it was so amazing, they nearly died just, let, just being able to see it. Nearly killed them, okay? Listen, Enoch, Enoch saw something come down, and, and I, you know, God walked with Enoch, and God came down and got him and took him away, right? And how about Isaiah? Isaiah didn't die, a chariot of fire came down and got Isaiah, right? And then Ezekiel sees this throne, and then John sees the same throne, and this says the exact same thing. These are not, listen, quit thinking of the spiritual as mythical, okay? Man, we, we think that something, just because it's spiritual, that it's mythical. It is not mythical. That is as real, I mean, if you walked up and touched it, you'd die, okay? You would. But it's something that you can walk up and touch. It's just not here. And God can make it here if he wants, oh, it might be here. It's just in a different dimension or something. We can't see it. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real, right? And you're thinking, well, how can, how can something be real that you can't see, touch, taste, or feel? How about love? Is love real? <laughs> yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. It's spiritual, but that doesn't mean it's not real. Okay? Quit thinking that of the spiritual as mythical. And number three, and this is the most important thing. Okay? From Abraham to Jesus was 2,000 years. Okay, Abraham was born in about 2000 BC and Jesus was born about zero BC, right? Three, three BC is really what they say. They had 2000 years, the Jewish people did, from Abraham to get ready for Jesus coming. 2000 years of people saying, the Messiah's coming, this is what he's going to look like. These are going to be the situations that it's going to be in. And y'all be ready. You know, it's going to come at a time and place that you don't really understand. But the Messiah's coming. And they had 2,000 years to get ready for that. And what happened when he came? They rejected him. Right? So God said, fine. Y'all rejected me. I gave you 2,000 years to get ready. And I sent how many people? to tell you exactly what was going to happen. And you didn't believe me. So I tell you what, since you didn't believe me, y'all just wait off to the side. God has blinded 
the nation of Israel where they cannot see the Messiah. Individuals can. There's not anything holding an individual Jew back from accepting the Messiah. But as a nation, God has blinded them and said, you want to be on your own? You're on your own. Now, of course, God is still taking care of them behind the scenes, of course. But listen, they had 2,000 years to prepare for Jesus coming. And they missed it. So guess what God gave us? How long has it been since Jesus? 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, God has been raising up people like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, Titus, Peter, right? All of these people for 2,000 years has been telling us, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming. The Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming. And we look back in the Old Testament and we go, how could they not see that it was right there and it was going to happen? We are at that exact same spot, church. We are at that exact same spot. And my question to you is, are you ready? Are you ready? I pray that you are. Because there's going to be some day that there's going to be a line in the sand. And that's either when Jesus comes back or your death. There cannot be any decisions made after that point. Your decision is made. Man, I pray to God you've made the right decisions. You've given your life to Jesus. And I ain't talking about that frilly, lovey-dovey, you know. Oh, we're not going to judge anybody. We're just going to love it. I'm talking about warrior type stuff. Because we are in the last days. And I don't know how long last days last. But I read my Bible and I can see Jesus is coming back. And I'm trying to get as many people to go with me to heaven as I can. And I pray that you'll do the same. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for your lesson today. And God, I pray that lives are changed. Man, we are trying to reach that fullness of the Gentiles right now. God, I pray that people are giving their lives to you right now, God. Right now. And if they do, they can follow it up because you said, do what I tell you to do. And one of the things you told us to do was get baptized so that we can identify with your death, burial, and resurrection. But Jesus, the main point is, is that you are coming back. You are coming back to get your church. And God, I just pray that a revival happens in this nation so that we can reach that fullness of the Gentiles so that you can come and fulfill all of those unleft prophecies that happen in the millennial kingdom. God, we love you. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for loving us even when we're rebellious. And thank you for showing us the way that is Jesus Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.